Well, take your Bibles and turn back to Romans chapter 6. And if you weren't here last week, we uh, jumped back into our study, our verse-by-verse study of uh, the book of Romans, uh, this epic um, letter that Paul wrote to the church uh, in Rome, the believers in Rome. And um, if you missed last week's message, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it uh, online or on our podcast, I guess, or live stream on YouTube and um, just to kind of get up to speed with where we're at, uh, because uh, this particular chapter, Romans chapter 6, is perhaps the most helpful, practical portion of the New Testament when it comes to overcoming sin in our life. And so you don't want to miss what Paul said here uh, in this chapter. And so let me begin reading in verse 1, and uh, I want to reread the verses we looked at last week, verses 1 through 7, um, by way of um, introduction to what we're going to talk about this morning, verses 8 through 14. So Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Father, there is profound truth here in these verses. And we ask that your spirit would illuminate us to understand exactly what Paul meant. And Lord, maybe more importantly, exactly how to apply these truths to our lives. Because I'm sure there's um, not many of us here who don't know these things already. Lord, we're not going to hear anything new this morning that we haven't already heard at some point in our Christian life, but it's the doing of it. It's the putting it into practice that's the difficult part. So would you grant us grace to do that today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, on January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which officially declared that the millions of African Americans in this country who had been subject to slavery uh, for most, if not all of their lives, were free. The news of this historic announcement spread rapidly throughout the southern states that were not under union control, but an amazing thing happened. The vast majority of slaves went right on living in fear and squalor as though they had never been emancipated. In some cases, in fact, their owners kept the news from them as long as possible, hoping to keep them working for them as slaves. Sadly, many slaves continued to serve their masters because they were oblivious to the fact that they had been set free. In fact, history records that when asked what he thought about the Emancipation Proclamation, one Alabama slave responded, he said, I don't know nothing about that. How tragic. A bloody civil war had been waged, a president had been assassinated, a document had been signed, a a proclamation had been made, slavery had been abolished. But despite this hard-earned freedom, many remained slaves to their old masters. I think a far greater tragedy is occurring in the church today. A spiritual war has been fought. God's Son has been crucified. A proclamation has been made that whoever turns from their sin and trusts Jesus Christ alone by faith will be both forgiven for their sin and freed from their life of sin. And yet despite this blood-bought freedom, far too many Christians continue to live as slaves to sin. You may be one of those Christians. You're sitting here this morning in bondage to a certain sin. A sin that has a stranglehold on your life. You may have struggled for days or months or even years to break free from it, but its chains still hold you captive. You become so deeply entrenched in this particular habit that you think it's impossible to change. And you've punished yourself over and over again, but you still cannot find relief from the guilt that you feel. And your former master, Satan, has done everything he can do to keep you oblivious to the fact that you're no, you're no longer a slave to sin. Hoping to, to keep you in his service as long as possible. And the sad reality is that if asked about your freedom in Christ, you would have to admit you don't know nothing about that. Well, if that describes you, Today, this portion of Romans will be a tremendous encouragement to you because it shows how to experience freedom from sin. Romans 6 is the Christian's emancipation proclamation. And I say that because the overarching theme of this chapter is clearly freedom from sin. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. 
Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that through that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derived your benefit, resulting in sanctification, the outcome, eternal life. And so over and over and over again, Paul repeats this same concept of of, of no longer being a slave to sin, being freed from sin. Now, the natural or obvious question of any honest Christian is then, if this is true, if I'm no longer a slave to sin, then why do I still sin so much? Why do I still find sin so alluring and and satisfying? Why does temptation still have such a strong pull on me? And why do I still give in to it, even though I've lost track of the amount of times I said, I'm never going to do that again? But you just did it again yesterday or this week. Why is it that I can't seem to quit this bad habit? Well, Paul shared his own frustration with remaining or indwelling sin in chapter 7, and we'll get there uh, soon enough. But what we learned last week is that while we no longer live in captivity to sin, we still have the capacity to sin. Before we became Christians, we were not able not to sin. But now we are able not to sin. In other words, you don't have to sin anymore. I mean, let that sink in for a second. You do not have to sin anymore. You don't have to do it. Now, granted, none of us will ever be sinless this side of heaven. So our goal is not to sin or to not sin. Our goal is not to not sin at all because that's impossible, but our goal is to not sin as much. You see, you, see, you say, well, that kind of doesn't sound like a high enough goal. Well, I just don't want to sin as much. Well, you're never going to get to the place where you don't sin at all. So let's be realistic. The point is you don't sin as much as you used to sin before you were saved. And I think this is the essence of sanctification. That the mark of a genuine Christian is not that they never sin, but they see a decreasing frequency of sin in their life. Anyone who claims to be a Christian but continues to live in an unrepentant, habitual pattern of sin is a contradiction. In other words, you cannot be genuinely saved and not also be sanctified. It's a package deal. God's plan of salvation doesn't just stop with our justification. It continues on with our sanctification and will ultimately climax with our glorification. Now, we talked about that last week. There's a past, present, and future aspect of salvation. The past aspect is our justification. We've been justified. The present aspect is we are being sanctified. And the future aspect is we will be glorified. But what Paul wants us to understand here is that when we were saved, we were not only delivered from the penalty of sin, but we were also delivered from the power of sin. And one day, we will even be delivered from the presence of sin. I wish I 
was good with like PowerPoint and pictures and all that kind of stuff. I'm not as good as Cal and Chris. Those guys rocked it this summer with their little uh, diagrams of the end times. But if you could visualize with me a, 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 a diagram, okay, of, of the, the, the relationship between justification and sanctification, okay? And just imagine, if you will, we've got two uh, parallel lines, uh, two horizontal lines parallel to one another, and, and the top line is, is, um, is God's righteousness, and the bottom line is man's sinfulness. So we've got God's righteousness here, and we've got man's sinfulness here. And then we've got a vertical line that shoots straight up, and that's what we call justification. That's a moment in time. It happens instantly, and it, and it represents our spiritual standing in Christ. We went from being a sinner to a saint in a split second. And so that is our standing that doesn't change. But then you've got a, this, this diagonal line. You've got man's sinfulness, you've got God's righteousness, and you've got justification. And then you've got this diagonal line, which represents sanctification, which happens gradually, slowly. And, and, it, and it's our actual state which is constantly changing, which is constantly growing. And so Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 zero in on that diagonal line. He already talked about chapters 1 through 5 is all about that vertical line, justification. Now he's focused on this diagonal line, this, this process of spiritual growth by which the Holy Spirit grows us and matures us and helps us sin less and less and become more and more like Jesus. And what makes this possible for us to sin less and less and become more and more like Jesus is that we are no longer, what? Slaves to sin. And here in chapter 6, Paul's burden was to help us understand and apply that profound truth. And show us how we can overcome those stubborn habits or those lifelong patterns of sin that we developed before we, we became a Christian. And so here in these verses in particular, verses 8 through 14, Paul explained how we as Christians can experience or enjoy our freedom from sin. He laid out three ways to overcome sin in our life or three steps to stop sinning so much. And if you have your outline there, you can see the three steps. Number one is comprehension. Number two is consideration. And number three is consecration. The first step is, is what we need to know. It involves our mind. The second step is, is what we need to believe. And it involves our heart. The third step is what we need to do. It involves our will. And in order to make this as useful and practical as possible, I want you to zero in on the sin in your life right now. Before we look at this passage, I want you to ask yourself, what is the biggest sin that you battle against on a daily basis? What is your number one besetting sin? What is the one habit that you wish you could break, that you find yourself thinking or saying, I, I just can't help myself. Is there, a, is there one particular sin that you feel enslaved to, that, that you just can't seem to stop doing? Do you feel like a slave to fear or anxiety or worry? Do you feel like a slave to food or some substance like nicotine or, or alcohol? 
Do you feel like a slave to lust or pornography? Do you feel like a slave to gambling or shopping or greed? Do you feel like a slave to lying or gossiping? Or do you feel like a slave to anger or pride or jealousy or laziness? Well, if you're a believer, you need to know you are not a slave to these things. You just think you are or you're just acting like you are. But you're not a slave to these things. If you're an unbeliever, the bad news is you are a slave to these things. But the good news is you don't have to be. See, Paul wanted both believers and unbelievers alike to know that when you receive the gift of salvation through faith in Christ, you're no longer under the dominion of sin but you're made alive with Christ and free to live a holy and righteous life by living, by by, by, by obeying and and serving him as your new master. And so what does that look like? How do we go about that? How do we realize that? How do we experience that? How do we enjoy this? Well, again, it starts, number one, with comprehension. There's something that we need to know. Notice what he says in verse 8. Now, if, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Here it is, verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. Four times Paul uses this word for know or knowing. He already used it in verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He used it again in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We just read verse 9. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So it's clear that Paul wanted his readers to know something. What did he want them to know? He wanted them to know who they are so that knowledge would be reflected in how they live. And so he says in verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. Paul was concluding or summarizing what he had just got done saying in verses 1 through 7 about how our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection has resulted in our liberation from sin. And we learned last week that this profound reality is wonderfully portrayed in water baptism, which serves as as a perfect illustration of the radical transformation that occurred when we got saved, that we, we died with Christ and we were buried with Christ and we were raised to walk in newness of life. And so he says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Based on our union with Christ, not only have we died with Christ, but if we've died with Christ, that also means we have been raised with Christ. Which means we will live with him in heaven someday, obviously. But I think it also means that we should live here and now in a new and different way. Look at verse 4. 
Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism and death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk or live in newness of life. Ephesians 2.5 says that we, although we were dead, were made alive together with Christ. We were raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2 verse 12, you were also raised up with him through faith, the working of God who raised him from the dead. He made you alive together with him. And so it's important that we know that, verse 9, that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. In other words, in his death, Christ willingly succumbed to the penalty of sin and the power of sin, which is death. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is, what? Death. And so when the sinless Son of God died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin and to also free us from the power of sin and death. And because he served as the perfect sacrifice, it never needs to be repeated. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. That phrase is used throughout the New Testament, mainly in the book of Hebrews, to emphasize the finality of Christ's work, that it was a once and for all sacrifice. In other words, God cannot, he will not ever die again. He is alive forevermore, Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. And notice it says in verse 10, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. The risen Lord Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven and lives to serve him and bring him honor and glory. And since we have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ, we also need to live like Christ, to live in the same manner as Christ. Rather than continuing to live in sin, like Paul's opponents were suggesting, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so the grace may abound? May never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So rather than continuing to live in sin, we should spend our lives serving God and not ourselves, bringing him glory and honor, even as Christ does. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So again, Paul is just repeating what he's been saying here in the first seven verses or so, that based on our union with Christ, we died to our former way of life and we were raised to a new way of living. In other words, we think and talk and act differently because we are not the same person we used to be. I don't know how many of you follow our predecessors over in the United Kingdom and all the goings-on of the, the crown family. I, I can't keep track of who's what and who's related to who and who's going to be the next king or queen or 
And it's all confusing in my mind, but I was reading an interesting account of Edward VIII, who served as the King of England back in the early 1900s for less than a year before he abdicated the throne so he could marry a twice-divorced woman, which, of course, the Church of England didn't take a liking to, and so they said, hey, you've got a choice to make. If you're going to marry this woman, we can't bless that, and you can't, you can't be the king. And so he became the Duke of Windsor. And when he died in 1972, the BBC aired a show reviewing the events of his life along with some interviews that they had with him. And when they asked him about his upbringing as the Prince of Wales, he said this, and I thought this was interesting. He said, quote, my father was a strict disciplinarian and sometimes when I had done something wrong, he would admonish me saying, my dear boy, you must always remember who you are. I think that's what Paul's point is here. We, as Christians, must always remember who we are. And when we forget who we are, that's typically when we do something wrong. We do something bad. We sin. One commentator put it this way, if a future earthly king, like Edward VIII, could be called to account for his behavior on the basis of who he was, how much more should the believer in Christ, destined to rule and reign far more than an earthly kingdom, be certain of whom he or she is and act accordingly? And so the first thing that we need to do to enjoy our freedom in Christ is to know who we are. And to comprehend the fact that we are dead to sin and we are alive to God. Which means we have been freed from living a life enslaved to sin. So it really starts off with knowing something. And Paul wants to make sure we know that. But there's a second step. And that's consideration. Verse 11. And this is what we need to believe. Again, this is involving not just our mind, but taking it from our mind, moving what is in our mind, moving it down into our heart, if you will. Notice he says, verse 11, even so, here it is, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. By the way, this is the first command that Paul gave in this chapter. So far, all all he's been doing up to this point in the first 10 verses, he's just stating facts. He's just stating things that are true about us. And now he finally gets to the so what. In light of this, then do this. And this is a great example of what Bible teachers call the indicative imperative motif in Paul's letters. He would always start with instruction And he would follow it up with exhortation. That's essentially what he's doing here in verses 1 through 10. He's instructing. And then in verses 11 through 14, he's exhorting. He began by stating theological truths, which inevitably lead to him giving practical commands of how these truths should affect the way we live. And again, this is a great lesson for us as as lifelong learners Right living always starts with right teaching. I guess you could even break it up further. You could say right living 
begins with right thinking, and right thinking starts with right teaching. So if you're not taught well, you're not going to think well, and if you don't think well, you're not going to live well. By the way, that's one of the main reasons why you should make sure that you and your family are going to a church where you're being taught the Word of God well. Because if you don't, you're not going to think well. And if you're not thinking rightly, you're not going to live rightly. So again, this is what we're doing here, studying the book of Romans, is a means to an end. It's about how we live our lives. And so Paul gets really practical here. He he turns the corner in verses, in between 10 and 11, from from the, the theological, the doctrinal, to the practical. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider is one of the most important words in the New Testament. It's used a total of 41 times, 19 times here in the book of Romans alone. That word consider is the same word Paul used back in chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him or considered to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15, 6. Again, it's the language of imputation, which was a banking term that meant uh, to credit or apply something to someone else's account. And so in this case, in chapter 6, verse 11, when Paul says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin... Or count yourselves dead to sin, if you will. He, he's, he's saying or commanding us to credit and apply to our lives the dual reality that we are dead to sin and we are alive to God. In other words, we need to reckon it as true of us. We need to accept it by faith that what God says about us is indeed true and then live like it. Paul was saying that it's not enough to know we have died to sin. We must actually acknowledge it and apply it to the way that we live our lives. Our words, our actions, our decisions must reflect that we really believe with all of our heart that we are dead to sin. And I don't think many Christians truly believe that. And the way I know that is because of listening to a lot of Christians pray. They pray things like, oh, God, grant me freedom from this sin. Give me victory over this sin. That's bad theology. What we should pray is, oh, God, you've given me victory over this sin. You've given me the power to be victorious over it. Help me to apply my freedom in Christ that you secured for me on the cross. It's a done deal. It's not something that still needs to happen. It already happened. And so it's more than just claiming a promise. It's acting on a fact. Paul wasn't commanding us to die to sin. He was telling us we're already dead to sin, and he was commanding us to live it out, to put it into practice. 
I think it's also important to note that this command is in the present tense, which implies that we must do this all the time. It's not just something you do once. This is a, 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 something that you're constantly reminding yourself that we're dead to sin and therefore we're freed from sin, which mean, means we're no longer slaves to sin and sin has no control over us. We have the power to resist and refuse sin's persistent appeals in our life. Some of you are familiar with the, the story of Augustine, the great church father who was saved out of a lifestyle of sexual immorality. His mother prayed for years that God would deliver him from his immorality and God answered that, the faithful prayers of that mom and uh, he got saved and he became a leader in the church and one day he was accosted by a woman who had been his mistress before his conversion. And he quickly turned and walked away and she called out after him, Augustine, it's, it's me, it's me. And quickening his pace, he called back over his shoulder, yes, I know it's you, but it's no longer me. See, overcoming sin in our life may require us to have an audible conversation with an actual person. Now, there may be some people in your life that, that come along and they are a temptation. And so you have to have an audible conversation with an actual person, like Augustine had to. But I think it's more likely that most of us need to have an imaginary conversation with certain sins. In other words, when we're being tempted to sin, we need to call sin's bluff. And you want to be careful where you might be doing this because you don't want people to think you're crazy talking to yourself, right? Maybe, you know, maybe it's just in your head. It's not necessarily coming out of your lips. But hey, if you're all by yourself in your car, have at it. Have a conversation, an imaginary conversation with your, with your sin. And, and, and tell them things like, you know what, you're not the boss of me. I mean, that's, you're not my master, you're not the boss of me. You have no power or control over me. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to give in to you. I, in fact, I don't want anything to do with you. We're done. I'm dead to you. To quote the Shark Tank guy, right? I'm dead to you. And we need to walk around through life staring temptation in the face and saying, you know, I'm dead to you. And I'm dead to you. And oh, by the way, I'm dead to you too, and you, and you, and you. I'm dead to you. For example, if you're walking towards the checkout line or through the checkout line at Walmart and the hostess singers start talking to you like they always talk to me, I mean, they put them right there, right? Because they know you're just going to kind of see them and you're going to want to get a package and eat them on the way home, you know, and throw, them, throw the package in the trash and walk in so your wife doesn't know about it. 
but she always looks at the receipt to see everything I bought at Walmart. So I get caught anyway. But, but you, so you're, you're, you're like, you're, you're, you see that, thing and you're like, guess what? You're not the boss of me, Zingers. I'm dead to you. Now, again, it's not necessarily a sin to eat some Zingers every once in a while, right? But whatever it is that you struggle with in life, that you know isn't healthy, helpful for you, that, that for you it may be sin at any particular time in your life. You need to have a conversation with that, whatever that is. And remind yourself and tell them, I'm dead to you. Now don't, for a second, think that Paul was suggesting that we play some mind game here. Trying to convince ourselves that something is true. No, this is true. And he wanted us to reason with ourselves about its truthfulness. The word there, consider, is the word legizomai in the Greek, which is where we get the English word what? Guess what that would be? Logic. Reason. And so we need to reason this out in our minds. That's what it means to consider yourself to be dead to sin but alive to God. You've got to reason it out in your mind. It's true, but you've got to work it out. And however you need to go about doing that is between you and the Lord and that stubborn sin in your life. And so the second thing we need to do here is to, to, to experience freedom from sin is to be absolutely convinced in our hearts that we are dead to sin and alive to God. And then, again, just flesh it out. Flesh it out in our battle with sin. And then thirdly, the third step is consecration. This is what we need to, to do. This involves our will. So far, it's been our mind. It's been our heart. And now, lastly, comes our will. Notice what he says in verse 12. Therefore, Again, if all this is true, and it is, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So in these verses, sin is personified as a powerful tyrant who used to be reigning over our lives. And even though he's been dethroned, he's still determined to exert his control over us. And again, Paul was commanding us to to stop letting sin rule over us. Stop giving in to sin's enticements. Even though it looks good, sounds good, smells good, feels good, don't do it. Notice he says, you know, it's sin reign in your mortal body. Talking about our physical body here. The fact that this, this body of ours, this flesh of ours is mortal, it's going to die, it's going to pass away someday, which by the way is what Satan appeals to with the things of the world. You've heard it said, I'm sure, that, that, that we war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are our three enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. 
You say, how does that work? Well, Satan knows the weakness of our flesh, and all of us have different weaknesses, different propensities to sin. And so Satan knows exactly what those are. He's like the expert fisherman that knows exactly what to use to hook us. And so he goes to his tackle box, which is the world, if you will, and he picks something out of the world, the tackle box of the world, and he dangles it in front of us. He runs it by us like a lure. And so he appeals to our flesh. 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These are Satan's bag of tricks. He picks a lust of the flesh. He picks a lust of the eyes. He picks the, uh, the lust of, of pride or boasting. And he knows that our flesh is weak. It's frail. It's mortal. And again, this is going back to some of what we said last week, that even though our old sin nature was crucified with Christ, and we have an entirely new nature, we don't have these two natures, an old nature and a new nature, warring against each other in our, in, within ourselves. We have... An entirely new nature, you say, okay, well, if the old nature is gone, then what's my problem? If all I got is a new nature, well, the problem is that that new nature is incarcerated in unredeemed flesh, which has the propensity to sin. Paul talks about this in chapter 7, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Verse 22, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, which, and here, listen, is wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then in chapter 8, verse 22, he says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of child." birth together until now and not only this but we also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body and so don't for a second just blame everything on your body no it's just if it wasn't just for the if it wasn't for this body and and some, somehow kind of Blame or shift the guilt, blame shift to your body as if you're not the one responsible. No, the battle is actually within the members of the body. This is where the battle lies. Notice what he says here. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Again, sin is likened here to this imposing military general who demands that we use our body parts as tools or weapons to accomplish his evil plans. I'm sure you realize that every one of your body parts is susceptible to sinning. Our minds think wicked thoughts. Our eyes 
lust after things. Our noses sniff drugs. Our lips speak lies. Our ears listen to gossip. Our hands murder other people. Our feet take us to places that we shouldn't go. Our private parts commit sexual immorality. So Paul says, stop it. Stop presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But that's not enough. It's not enough just to stop using the parts of our body for sinful purposes. We need to start using them for God-honoring purposes. And here we see what Paul laid out in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, this whole idea of putting off sin. That's half the process. But then we also, the other half is putting on righteousness. It's not enough to say, I I need to quit that. I need to stop that. It's to say, okay, what's the opposite virtue that I need to put on, that I need to pursue? Instead of, "I, I just need to quit being so prideful. I need to quit being so prideful. No, I need to learn to be humble. And so here's the secret. To stop presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, Instead, present yourselves to God as those alive from, your, from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The word present means to surrender or to offer up as a sacrifice. Romans 12.1, we're going to see this when we get there, the ultimate hinge of this, of this entire letter Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, in other words, in light of everything I've taught you in chapters 1 through 11 about your salvation, present your bodies, surrender your bodies, offer up your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, in light of all that God has done for us in Christ, the most logical thing to do is to surrender the rest of our lives to serve him. And so when Paul says here to present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, there's two parts here. It begins with surrendering, surrendering our entire life to God. That's the first step. And then offering up each individual, each individual part of our body as tools or weapons that, that he can use to accomplish his eternal purposes. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body. Philippians 1.20, Paul said his earnest expectation, his hope that, that Christ would even now as always be exalted in my, what? Body, whether by life or by death. Again, the picture here is of a soldier faithfully reporting for duty on a daily basis and presenting arms before his commanding officer. I mean, you think about that. I mean, talk about using your imagination in in, in creative ways for the purpose of sanctification to, to see yourself presenting arms on a daily basis, coming before your commanding officer and said, here I am, I'm ready to serve you again today. And we place 
ourselves at God's disposal so that he can use us as he sees fit. This is a deliberate act of the will whereby we yield our life to God so that all of our energies, all of our faculties are employed in obeying and serving and honoring and glorifying him. I think that's that hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, has to be based on this passage. Take my life, let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. Now, don't miss the significance of this, this consecrating ourselves, because it is critical to us experiencing freedom from sin. Why? Because based on Matthew 6, 24, it's impossible to serve two masters at the same time. You can't serve God and sin at the same time. It's impossible. One commentator put it this way, when all our time is spent in joyfully seeking to please our new master, we will no longer be easy prey for the old one. You've heard it said, idle hands, idle time are the devil's workshop. Isn't that true? Have you found that to be true in your life? Idle hands, idle time are the devil's workshop. I thought of this yesterday when I was out cooking some bacon for breakfast on our grill. And uh, we got this, this miniature uh, Australian shepherd named Shadow. I just call him a knucklehead. Because he's a knucklehead. And he just goes out in the backyard. We let him out in the backyard. He just, he just stands out there and barks at anything that moves. Incessantly. Bark, 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 bark. Drives us crazy. And so I thought, I'm going to try something. So I was out there cooking and, you know, going over, telling him to shut up. Hey, quit your barking. He kept barking. Everybody's out walking Saturday morning. Everybody's walking. Dogs everywhere. Everywhere. Everywhere's just... Converged on our house, and so he was barking like crazy. So I picked up the Frisbee, and I started throwing the Frisbee across the yard. Guess what he did? He stopped barking. He started chasing the Frisbee. And I picked it up again, and I threw it across the yard. And as long as I was playing Frisbee with him, he wasn't barking. He was doing something productive with his life. And, and I think about that's our that's our life, right? When we have nothing... To do, and we have idle time and idle hands and idle minds, we get ourselves into trouble. We act like knuckleheads. But if we're doing something productive, right, we don't have time to, to sin. I'll never forget hearing a guy say this one time. He was talking about pastors who disqualify themselves through having an affair. And he just said, you know, 
I'm too busy to have an affair. I don't, even, I don't know how these guys fit this into their schedule. I don't have time for an affair. And he was talking about how busy he was serving the Lord and just filling up his life with ministry. And obviously there's a balance there, right? But hey, that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. It keeps you out of trouble. Notice the last phrase here. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you. Why? For you are not under law, but under grace. This final statement provides us the reason why we can experience freedom from sin. Why? Because we are, what? No longer under the law, but under grace. If you've been studying this book with us, you know that Paul's already made it crystal clear we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God by keeping the law. The only thing the law can do is point out our sin. It can't pay for our sin. It can't break the power of sin in our lives. In fact, the power of sin is the law. That's what 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six says. The law makes us aware that we're sinners, but it provides us no help in overcoming sin. It simply condemns us for sin, but it's unable to conquer sin in us. It, it frustrates us, but it can't free us. And that's why Paul said in Romans chapter 7, after talking about the, the, the purpose of the law, he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? It's not the law. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Christ was God's grace the embodiment of God's grace. And it was God's gracious way of providing for us a way to be acceptable to him by sending his son to live and to die in our place and accomplish what the law could not do. And so we are saved by grace and we are also sanctified by grace. So despite what the critics of Paul wrongly assume, grace doesn't encourage sin. On the contrary, it's God's grace that enables us to overcome sin and enables us to put into practice the, the principles that Paul laid out for, here, laid out for us here in this, in this passage. Grace is the environment in which we are sanctified, in which we grow and change to become all that God wants us to be. 1 Corinthians 15.10, what did Paul say? But... By the grace of God, what? I am what I am. That means we can't take any credit for any growth or change or victory over sin that we experience. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It was all by what? Grace. And we also have to remember none of us can break free from sin on our own. None of us are smart enough None of us are strong enough. If we were, then Jesus wouldn't have to come die to free us from sin. And that's why we must never boast about what we've done, but always and only in what Christ has done for us on the cross. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you three questions in closing. Number one, do you clearly comprehend that you 
have been freed from sin. Do you get that? Secondly, do you constantly consider that a practical reality in your life? Are you constantly working that out? Are you fleshing that out? Are you reasoning with yourself and having imaginary conversations with sin and and habits and zingers or whatever? And then thirdly, do you completely consecrate yourself to honor and serve God on a regular basis? Is that a daily experience for you? Because if you're not coming to the Lord on a daily basis and, 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 and offering yourself up for him, for your service, and all the members of your body for his use, then you'll never experience or enjoy freedom from sin. But if you do these things, you will experience freedom from sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this practical truth that seems to be a lot easier to understand than it is to put into practice. And so we ask for your help today to take these truths that we've learned and to apply them to our lives. Lord, that you would help us to claim the victory that we've already received from you. That we would live it out and apply it to our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.